0: Hello, and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess, and I will be your host as we deep dive into all things tanks. Today, we are getting into it. This episode will cover the entirety of Unternehmen Lutig and the failures of the German High Command, OKW which led to the collapse of the German Army of the West in the Filet Pocket. There will be plenty of action for the Panther-Aus-G, and I hope to detail the shortcomings and triumphs throughout to better paint the picture of the Panzerwaffe during these latter stages of the war. Assuming we have time, I want to get into the final months of the war, as there are some interesting aspects in regards to the combat deployment of the Panther-G. That's my plan of attack for today's episode. We'll start in the west and move over to the east and try to wrap up the panther Osferholm G once and for all. It only took us three episodes? Not too bad, right? Here goes nothing. We won't have to travel too far back in time to set the scene for what would become the fillet pocket, or gap, rather, but it would serve us well if we had an idea of the overall strategic picture. After all, it has been a couple of weeks since we last checked in on the Western Front. Following the D-Day landings and securing of the beachhead, the Allies were looking for routes out of the Continent Peninsula, which is also known as the Cherbourg Peninsula, from Avranche to Caen. In case anyone was confused last time when I was using the former Continent Peninsula to describe this area, I have the benefit of looking at a map when I write these episodes so if you've had any trouble visualizing the area we're discussing, I apologize. Fun fact, the Cotentin Peninsula is one of the last bastions of the Norman language, yes, as in those Normans, the medieval Normans, which could only be described as a dialect of French, and is in the same family as the Picard and Walloon languages, all of which are part of the Galo, Romance Tree, Langue d'Or. Anywho, back to our thing. On July 18, 1944, the British and Canadian forces under Bernard Montgomery began Operation Goodwood and Operation Atlantic, an offensive meant to finish off the staunch defenders in and around the city of Caen. The city of Caen itself was quite important to both the Allies and the Germans. For the Allies, it had been the key objective for the British 3rd Infantry Division on D-Day. The city was the third largest in all of Normandy, which ended up seeing about 70% of its buildings destroyed during the intense bombing campaigns of Operation Charnwood, only a fortnight prior to Operation Goodwood. Caen was strategically important for a number of reasons. Caen sits only 14 kilometers, or 9 miles from the coast, creating a narrow strip of land that could be easily held. The northern flank would be nearly impossible to get around due to the Orne River and the Con Canal, which creates an impassable obstacle to the north. Due to the river and canal, Con itself is the main crossing point for both many roads and railroads, not to mention the communication lines running into and out of the city. It was a large hub. Furthermore, and probably the most important, was the area south of Con which was fairly flat and quite open, perfect for maneuver warfare, something the bocage-laden Western Normandy was very ill-suited for. The bocage in Normandy is filled with hedgerows. Now, these aren't the hedges you might have in front of your house lining your walkway. No, these hedgerows were straight-up medieval. Seriously, some of the hedgerows are well over 700 years old. Martin Blumenson, in his book Breakout and Pursuit, describes them as such, The hedgerow is a fence, half earth, half hedge. The wall at the base is a dirt parapet that varies in thickness from one to four or more feet, and in height from three to twelve feet. Growing out of this wall is a hedge of hawthorn, brambles, vines, and trees, in thickness from one to three feet. Originally property demarcations, hedgerows protect crops and cattle from the ocean winds that sweep across the land. These hedgerows were so thick that, in fact, tanks had trouble getting through them. Notably, Heinz Guderian even complained of these hedgerows ripping off the Scherzen from his Panthers. Finally, Allied Air Force commanders also wanted the area south of Khan captured so that they might make some airfields to get their aircraft closer to the fight to better utilize their fighters and close air support. The Germans understood all this as well. Kahn was a strategic linchpin to the Allied effort of breaking out of Normandy, and conversely was the same for the Germans, in that keeping the Allies bottled up. Remember, the enemy always gets a vote, and boy howdy did the defenders of Caen ever exercise their suffrage to the detriment and horror of the British and Canadian forces. So, Operation Goodway is underway, Caen, for the most part, will be captured, and so Montgomery had hoped that Goodwood was going to be the breakthrough the Allies were wishing for. Having been bogged down on the peninsula since D-Day, the Allied commanders had grown quite impatient with each passing day and the stalemate wasn't producing much of anything besides casualties. Now, before everyone blames Montgomery for being so casualty-averse, or lying to Eisenhower about the aims of Goodwood, I might add that no general at the time was having any luck with their breakout attempts. No general was willing to absorb high casualties, and moreover, the public at home wasn't ready for what might have been if a less cautious approach had been considered. So, Operation Goodwood, which was launched on July 18th, by way of a massive artillery and air campaign, some 1,000 aircraft dropped 4,500 tons of bombs on German positions to the east of Caen, destroying large swaths of German artillery and defensive positions dotted amongst the villages surrounding Caen, even strafing a staff car, which contained a certain field marshal, Erwin Rommel, whose driver was fatally wounded, forcing him to drive off the road and crash. Rommel himself suffered a severe head wound, effectively taking him out of the war forever, as he would then be implicated in a plot to kill Hitler and was forced to commit suicide. However, German defense in depth was quite well dug in, and several villages full of German artillery were unscathed by the preliminary bombardment. This led to the British forces taking an inordinate amount of casualties, including losing somewhere between 250 to 400 tanks. The reports kind of vary. Um, This was the largest armored engagement and remains to this day the largest armor engagement for the British Army. A story that we will certainly detail another time on another series. The reason the reports differ is that the majority of these knocked out tanks ended up being mostly recoverable, and the actual number of total write-offs for the Brits ended up being closer to 100 to 150 tanks. It was still devastating, and Montgomery was chastised harshly for it. Andrew Williams, in his book D-Day to Berlin, wrote as much. Eisenhower was furious at the result which dogged Montgomery as it allowed his detractors, especially Air Marshal Tedder, to imply that the operation was a failure, end quote. While the argument could be made that Operation Goodwood and the Canadian supporting Operation Atlantic were failures, but that is only because the main objective, which was supposed to be the capture of Filet, was dropped at the last moment by Montgomery himself. Instead, a vague breakout objective had been declared, which of course did not happen, but that should not detract from the fact that the Orne River had now been secured, and along with it Kahn, the city which had vexed the Commonwealth armies desperately since D-Day. I should also like to note that the Germans had placed eight panzer divisions in this sector, including the 21st Panzer and the Panzer Lehr Division, These two units had halted the initial advance, but after a few days were forced to withdraw. And thus, by keeping the majority of the panzer divisions occupied on the northeast front, the Americans, who as we are about to discuss, were going to begin Operation Cobra to the southwest, and would be launching their offensive blow against mm, about four rather understrength panzer divisions. Operation Cobra would be in conjunction with Operation Goodwood and Operation Atlantic, two halves of the same coin. As noted, the Allied commanders were growing antsy at the prospect of being bottled up on the peninsula for so long, despite their best efforts to break out of Normandy and venture into the rest of France. While the Eastern Front of Normandy was being throttled by the British Second Army and the Canadian First Army, the American 1st Army, under command of Lieutenant General Omar Bradley, was readying their attack on the western flank. On July 25, 1944, thousands of Allied aircraft bombed the living piss out of the German defensive lines around St. Lo, and a further saturation bombing deeper along the St. lo Perrier Road. The Panzer Lehr Division, which had been involved in opposing Operation Goodwood to the east, had been thoroughly roughed up during the fighting around Khan, which led the unit to be redeployed from the east and sent west for reserve duties. As luck might have it, this reserve duty stuck the Panzer Lehr Division, which was nearly decimated, boasting around 2,000 combat troops, a dozen Panzer IVs, and only 16 Panthers, was now lying in direct path of the U.S. 8th Air Force bombing run. The once-feared lair Division, according to its commander Fritz Beierlein, was now, quote, finally annihilated, end quote. Due to the nature of the Bocage country in the American sector, the offensive needed to break through quickly and into the more open territory further to the south and out of the crisscrossed hedgerows that defined the Bocage. Here's a little diversion to our main story, fueled by a personal anecdote. After I had graduated high school in the year 2000, hmm, I was very active in my World War II reenacting and collecting. Through my reenacting with the California Historical Group, I had met a veteran named Jack Ulmer. Or rather, I met Jack through his son Gary, who at the time was a member of another unit. I think he was uh, reenacting the 1st Infantry or maybe the 2nd Infantry. I can't recall. Uh, in fact, I was still at the time reenacting with the 9th Infantry Division and would eventually end up as a member of the 34th Infantry. And finally, uh, the last unit I reenacted was the 82nd Airborne before I, finger quotes here, retired to focus on other things. And I, I did end up trying my hand at the Great War reenactment scene, which was a lot of fun. Anyway, we realize, Jack, Gary, and I, that we are neighbors and not... He lives nearby neighbors. I mean, he was two streets over, a five-minute walk neighbor. So, after our battle over the weekend, I had an appointment to go visit with Jack and Gary to hear his story and take some notes. Jack told me a lot about his time in the service with the 35th Infantry Division, which fought throughout Normandy. His unit landed on Omaha Beach a month after D-Day and entered combat on July 11th, fighting north of St. Lowe notably fighting in the hedgerows, to which some things Jack told me have always stuck with me throughout my lifetime. He mentioned to me how the German defenders, making good use of these hedgerows, would lay in ambush, fixing their machine guns on small openings that American soldiers would stick their heads through or attempt to crawl under to get past the bramble. It was brutal, and it was deadly. Jack lost many friends and fellow soldiers during this combat. He noted that for every 100 yards, 10 to 20 guys might just get hit, trying to force their way through to the next line of hedgerows. The casualties were staggering. However, one thing in particular stood out. For each hedgerow that the GIs took, they suffered casualties. But Jack told me he never saw any dead Germans. There seemed to be signs of wounded, you know, there's blood, maybe some bandages. And he was sure that he had taken careful aim at some of the Jerry, but there were no dead or wounded lying about. And as the fighting carried on, this was beginning to affect the morale of his unit. Dead Americans were piling up, pushing through this maze of medieval shrubbery. And sure, they were taking ground, but it seemed as if the Germans were simply unkillable or too clever to wait around long enough to become a casualty or a prisoner. What was going on? Well, after a particularly nasty bit of fighting over some unmarked road between two fields, Jack and his squad mates had stumbled upon a German lorry which had been knocked out by a mortar. This lorry, which was heavily camouflaged to protect from Allied fighter bombers, was filled with the corpses of fallen German soldiers. This tactic, at least in this small chasm between the absurd and unbelievable, was an attempt at some localized psychological warfare. And it was working. As far as Jack could tell, the Germans were collecting their dead and dying and loading them onto this lorry. Then, once the Americans were finally going to push the defenders back to the next line of prepared defenses, the truck would haul ass and get behind cover at a position further behind the front. In this way, it appeared as though no German soldiers were dying Whilst the Americans were absorbing plenty of their own, and this did have the desired effect. At least, as far as Jack and his unit were concerned, they really thought that the effort they were making was futile. This bocage country was filled with hedgerows, and if this is what the fighting was going to be like all throughout France, well, they weren't looking forward to it. Jack Ulmer served in the U.S. Army from 1940 to 1945. He earned the Silver Star, two Bronze Stars, a Purple Heart, Good Conduct Medal, and the Combat Infantry Badge. He passed away in June of 2011 at the ripe age of 90 years old. I was lucky enough to meet Jack and hear his story, and now, nearly 20 years later, I get to use these notes to share his story with a broader audience. When we do move on to the Sherman tank, I have some more personal anecdotes from gracious veterans who were willing to share their stories with me. My only regret is that 20-year-old me hadn't been better with keeping more detailed notes and using a voice recorder. Though to be fair, most of these conversations were less than formal and usually included casual conversation that might spark a memory worth reminiscing about. That being the American experience in the bocage, but... How did the panzers handle the maze of hedgerows in Normandy? According to SS Panzer Regiment II's commander, SS Obersturmbahnfahrer Christian Teichen, Here on the invasion front, we are facing an enemy superior to us in equipment but not in fighting spirit. We shall also emerge victorious in this struggle because fighting spirit is the deciding factor in battle. I expect my company commanders to be able to rouse their men, filling them with a fanatical alarm. Every man must be convinced of our ability to cancel out enemy air and material superiority. We shall exploit the inferior quality of the enemy soldier as a fighting man. The enemy tanks are timid. If we tackle them energetically, we shall make them run and soon destroy them. End quote. Remember when Max Hastings said... Only SS fanatics held out hope for winning? Well, here's your fucking fanatic, and wow, is he sure living up to the hype. If we move past the chest puffery, the SS Obersturmbannführer does relay some tactical know-how in regards to fighting in the bocage, and experience gained from doing so. He lists quite a few detailed tactical maneuvers and operations that should be adhered to whilst fighting amongst the hedgerows. I'm not too keen on listing them all, but I want to squeeze in a few that are more focused to what we're talking about. Quote, Here in the hedgerows, there will be none of the tank fighting that we dream about. The close country compels us to fight with small battle or assault groups with close cooperation between panzers, panzer grenadiers, pioneers, and artillery." End quote. He continues, quote, "Training and preparation." The few remaining days at our disposal will be spent in intensive training. The men must be toughened. The following are the detailed guiding principles. Night Training Close cooperations of panzers, especially the panther Abteilungen, pioneers, and motorcyclists. This must ensure that the panzers can, whatever the terrain, follow up and give flexible support to the attacking Grenadiers. I know that panzers can't fight independently in forward areas at night, but they must exploit every possible opportunity and, if possible, even push forward alone. At night, alternative means of communication with Panzer grenadiers and pioneers is important. It is necessary to have one or two runners riding on every commander's panzer. Light discipline is imperative. Commanders' panzers should have as many headlights as possible fitted to their vehicles. These are only to be used on orders from the company commander. Short flashes are sufficient to spot the enemy, after which there must be a change of position. Designation of target and fire commands will occur before the headlights are turned on. Panzer commanders themselves are to observe continuously from their open hatches. All panzers will be camouflaged. Flat surfaces will be covered with wire netting on which foliage will be interlaced. The and will also be camouflaged in this manner. End quote. The minutiae, the little details. This is why I am doing this podcast. I love this almost nitpicky content that serves kind of a small purpose in the grand scheme, but elates the likes of me and I'm guessing some of you as well. Uh, This wire netting that he speaks of was literally wrapped around the turret of the panther, the side skirts, and kind of wherever else they could get it. I have an excellent photo that I'll be sharing of this exact camouflage system from Normandy, and I will dutifully post it to my Instagram. So let's continue a little bit here. Quote, During the day, the panzers are to move by short bounds from cover to cover. All firing positions must also afford cover. Loose formations are necessary. Under these conditions, the panzers may even, as an exception, operate by halbzüge, or small sections. Firing from the hedges must be practiced. If necessary, loaders should dismount and make a field of fire. Hedge cutters should be organized. If defensive fire is very heavy, Fire should be opened at any suspected source. The principal weapon in this terrain is the machine gun. All panzers will therefore be issued at least 5,000 rounds of machine gun ammunition. Each panzer will also be issued 20 hand grenades for the engagement of enemy infantry. End quote. 20 hand grenades? What this commander had learned from the first month of combat against the Allies in Normandy quickly becomes apparent here with these instructions machine guns, and hand grenades, these men were experiencing what amounts to -to hand-to-hand combat, but from inside armored fighting vehicles. After the initial assault of Operation Cobra, the fighting was fierce, but the bombing and subsequent onslaught of close air support forced several gaps in the German defensive lines. Morale shattered, equipment shredded, tanks overturned, and a seemingly endless parade of OD green tanks Half tracks and American GIs were pouring through and pushing the defenders out of their holes. Only days after the initial waves of bombers had dropped their payloads, the Americans had seized avranches and several key bridges along the rivers and surrounding tributaries. By July 31st, the Germans were in full retreat, and the Allies were now free at the Bocage, and they could pursue the Germans in their withdrawal. Brittany and Normandy were now wide open. Alright, with that bit of background out of the way, we can now get a visual for how fucked the German army in Normandy had become. The situation was tenuous, and of course Hitler was in no mood to accept the reports from Field Marshal von Kluge, Supreme Commander in the West and Commander of Army Group B, reports in which he stated that the situation was absolutely dire and defeat was imminent. After learning of the Allied successes and advances towards Le Mans, which would fall on August 8th, uh, instead of listening to the people who had been, you know, soldiering their entire adult lives, Hitler, the amateur tactician and egotistical maniac that he was, decided on an immediate counterattack towards the town of Mortain and Avranche, which is a lot of words to get us right back to where we had essentially left off our story the last episode. I know, I know, but I felt it necessary to grasp the scope and futility of the German defensive position before we got to this battle. The German army in the West was between a U.S. army-shaped rock and a Commonwealth-shaped hard place, as it were. And Unternehmen Lutich, better known to the Allies as the Mortain counterattack, was supposed to be the Nazis' ticket out of Dodge. I'm going to be quite frank here, This whole operation was doomed right from the start. Von Kluge, recognizing the situation's hopelessness, pleaded with Hitler to allow his remaining forces in Normandy to retreat to the eastern shore of the Seine River, where there were still defensive lines intact. Hitler instead insisted that eight of the nine remaining panzer divisions, most of which were desperately holding the British and Canadians at bay on the eastern flank, he ordered that these units be used for the upcoming counteroffensive along with the Luftwaffe's remaining reserve of ground troops. This decision to strike back against the allies rather than pull back for defensive operations was, according to Omar Bradley and the book The Falaise Gap Battles, Normandy 1944 by Simon Forty, quote, "That decision to attack more than any other was to cost the enemy the battle for France." End quote. This attack, which Hitler had envisioned as a surprise attack, was set for August 6th of 1944. However, elements of the 116th Panzer Division had not yet found their place in the jumping-off points, so the attack would have to wait until August 7th the following morning. The so-called surprise attack was for the most part known to the Allies via the British Ultra Programme, ULTRA being the British codebreaker operation that had long since figured out the German Enigma machine, thanks in a large part to Poland, and were essentially reading the German messages in real time. Through ULTRA, Bradley knew that the German attack was coming, known to the Allies as the Mortain counterattack. It should also be noted that von Kluge, along with SS General Paul Hauser, had decided not to pull the full eight divisions off the front, as Hitler had directed, but instead use only four panzer divisions, the 2nd and 116th panzer divisions, along with the 1st and 2nd SS panzer divisions, totaling about mm, 300 tanks, of which about 40 were panther Ausg. G. The rest of the armor would mostly be panzer 4s and stugs. These panzer divisions were supported by two understrength infantry divisions and Kampfgruppen from the decimated panzer lair division. I should note that the Americans had still yet to engage with any Tiger tanks on the western front. The Schwer-Panzer-Abteilungen were exclusively engaged with the British and Canadian forces to the east near Caen. There were quite a few false reports of Americans engaging with Tiger tanks during this period of the war, And without getting too much into it, these reports were incorrect. Not by any purpose or malintent to deceive, but because in the heat of battle, a boxy-shaped Panzer IV at 500 meters might look like a tiger to a GI who has just briefly popped his head up and ducked back down. Not totally relevant to our current story, but it is a little fun fact. The Americans had still yet to fight a tiger tank in Normandy. Anyway, the German counteroffensive began in the wee hours of the morning on August 7th of 1944. Low-hanging clouds and plenty of fog, perfect for the attacking force. The attack pushed forward without any preparatory artillery bombardment or close air support, though the latter would have been impossible even if von Kluge or General von Funk had wanted it. The lack of artillery bombardment was done to keep with the theme of a surprise attack and hope to catch the offenders off guard. Though the battle plans had been known to Bradley, the exact timing and the precise area was unknown, and thus the troops of the 30th U.S. Infantry Division were caught partially by surprise by the 2nd SS Panzer Division as they forced their way west, capturing the town of Mortain. So far, so good. However, Hill 314, which was the main feature overlooking the area around Mortain, and was defended by the U.S. 2nd Battalion of the 120th Regiment, 30th Infantry Division, which totaled about 700 men, Hill 314 overlooked the battlefield and allowed these U.S. soldiers to call down artillery strike after artillery strike upon the would-be attacking forces, who... Suffered heavy casualties against the Americans while they stubbornly held the hill and would not relent until the battle was over. The 120th Regiment taking well over 300 casualties in the process but halting the German push west and keeping them out of Mortain for more than the few hours the Germans had penetrated during the initial assault. Several hours later, on the northern sector, 2nd Panzer Division, not SS, began their push to the south towards the town of Avranche, hoping to capture this town and then cut off Patton's 3rd Army from their supply lines. They pushed several miles towards their objective before running up against the steadfast defenders of the 3rd Armored and 35th Infantry Division, the very same 35th Infantry Division my friend Jack Ullman was fighting with here at this very battle. The Germans were only 3 kilometers or 2 miles short of Avranche. The offensive had stalled almost as quickly as it had begun. This is called foreshadowing. OKW, however, ordered that the attack recommence immediately with the goal of capturing Avranche before noon. Now, the before noon aspect was quite important. The heavy fog was quickly burning away as the morning heated up. I managed to find some weather reports which reported temperatures of about 20 to 26 degrees Celsius or 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit by noon on August 7th, which may not seem like it's too hot for those of us living in Southern California, but for the fog layer protecting the German forces from the 9th Air Force, it was disastrous. Once that fog layer was burned off, the full might of the American Army Air Forces would be brought down upon the German counteroffensive. Well, lo and behold, as the Germans continued their attacks unsuccessfully, the sun decided that he was going to get real loud and take care of that protective layer of fog. Once the curtain was pulled back, the US 9th Air Force, along with elements of the RAF 2nd Tactical Air Force, were already overhead. The Luftwaffe, for all of its promises to the ground commanders, could do very little except get shot up the instant they became airborne, and according to Chester Vilmont and Christopher McDevitt in their book The Struggle for Europe, quote, not a single Luftwaffe aircraft reached the battlefield, end quote. If you're beginning to sense a pattern in regards to Goering's failures of promises made to promises kept, you're not the only one. The Luftwaffe, like we've learned before, was a ghost of its former self and, for all intents and purposes, was non-existent in any kind of supporting role. The rocket-laden Typhoons, firing their 60-pound, or 27-kilo, rockets into the now fully exposed Panzers, were wreaking havoc on the advancing enemy. While we know from last episode that close support was hardly boasting above a 4% hit rate, The unopposed strafing and diving from the Allied air forces was too much for the German panzers to handle. To the south, Omar Bradley had decided to gamble with Patton's 3rd Army, and instead of pulling him back to certain safety, he instead unleashed the general on the German left flank to the south to quote from the book The Fillet Pocket by Major Braden de Lauder, Bradley had two decisions. The first would be to recall the 3rd Army to strengthen Hodge's 1st Army at Mortain, and the second option would be to send the 3rd Army into the flank of the German counterattack. Confidently reminded by Eisenhower that airlift could provide 2,000 tons of supplies daily for the 3rd Army if this plan could not hold off the German counterattack, Bradley decided this was an acceptable risk and turned the 3rd Army north in a pincer movement. Hitler had exposed his whole broad flank to attack and encirclement from the south. End quote. It was exactly in this sector where we find the 116th Panzer Division, and more specifically, the 1st Abteilung Panzer Regiment 24, which had been recently assigned to the 116th Panzer on loan from the 24th Panzer Division. This was the only Panther Abteilung in the 116th Panzer Division. And I know. You were all probably wondering why I had been droning on for about 4,000 words without mentioning the Panthers all that much. Well, fear not, we are about to take a nice bite out of a juicy after-action report, courtesy of Wachtmeister Müller, or Sergeant Mueller, a tank driver of the 2nd Squadron of the Panzer Regiment 24 during Uternamen Lutich. Quote, the Abteilung was moving south to cover approaches that could be taken by the pursuing enemy. We met the opponents in the morning hours on a summer day. There were only four Panthers under the leadership of Leutnant Stetska. I myself was the driver of his Panther. With his calm demeanor, he described the situation and then gave orders to advance. Following the direction of my commander, I brought the Panther into position on the left side of the road. The immediate area was completely open and presented absolutely no cover. Several panzer grenadiers were positioned around the Panther for close defense. There were no other friendly units to our left. No sooner had we taken up our position than enemy artillery spotter aircraft arrived. After several minutes, the first rounds burst around us and the other Panthers. To our left, a sunken lane ran parallel to the road. I noticed Americans coming out of the sunken lane 800 to 1,000 meters away. Before I could inform the commander of this target, they quickly turned and disappeared as soon as they had spotted the Panthers. Twenty minutes later, the artillery fire suddenly stopped. Twelve to fifteen young men in civilian clothes came out of the sunken lane. When they spotted the Panthers, they totally panicked and ran around for close to half an hour at a range of 800 meters in front of our gun. Then, they disappeared again the way they had come. Shortly thereafter, the artillery fire had started again. The hits came close to the Panther. Only by continuously changing position were we able to prevent the artillery fire from having any effect. Then I heard the lieutenant telling the gunner about enemy tanks and immediately spotted two Shermans on the ridge 1,200 meters from us. Hardly had the fire command been given than the commander spotted additional tanks pushing out of the sunken lane to our left. The first shot landed close in front of the first enemy tank. The second shot a hit. The crew bailed out. Then I heard in the earphones, Mueller, reverse. The lieutenant wanted to cancel the threat to our flank. From orders to the gunner, I knew that we were surrounded by at least eight Shermans. Still totally calm, the commander gave orders to turn and engage the tanks that had us cut off. Three tanks were taken under fire. No hits were observed. Then the order, retire down the road. At the same moment, a stunning noise inside the Panther. A hit. This time, us. The motor still ran, and I tried to bring the Panther out of enemy fire. I still drove 300 meters before the heat from the burning tank caused me to bail out. I dove under the panther for cover and saw the radio operator jump out and run away. Then I heard the voice of my commander besides the panther. I crawled over and saw that both of his lower legs were missing below the knee. No cries of pain came from his lips. He immediately determined what had happened to the crew. I tried to bind the wounds, but he refused, saying, Leave it, Mula it is pointless. I couldn't carry him away from the burning tank, since heavy machine guns fire all around us. Then I proposed, Herr Leutnant, we should give up as prisoners and I will get us medical help immediately. He declined, stating, "Müller, take my identification tag and my paybook. I order you to take these back to the squadron. He then asked me to greet his parents, said farewell, and again ordered me to break through to the squadron. End quote. That's a lot to take in. I know it was quite a long quote, but I think it illustrates the frustrations and overall hopelessness of the situation for the Panther G in Normandy, and, well, the rest of the German defenders, for that matter. One point that stands out to me is how well the Allied aircraft worked in conjunction with both the tanks on the ground and the artillery. This can actually be attributed to one man in the U.S. Army, and that man was General... Elwood Pete Cusada, 9th Tactical Air Force Commander, and his absolutely brilliant, and at least for the time period, incredibly forward-thinking in putting aircraft radios inside both the tanks and with the artillery. This absolutely revolutionized combined arms and the speed in which artillery support and air support could be brought to bear on the enemy. Max Hastings, in his book Overlord, D-Day, and the Battle for Normandy, postulates, It was Quesada who mounted aircraft radios in American tanks at the time of Cobra. This effort in combined arms of air and ground forces received much praise, and not until Normandy did the Army Air Force become a real participant in the ground battle. I would have to agree. The Panzertruppen, especially the Panther units, had not experienced this kind of combined arms firepower against them, ever. So, their tactics in dealing with this were being learned on the fly. And like our report above, oftentimes with dire results. We will get into the Sherman tank on our next series, but suffice it to say, during the Normandy campaign, the Sherman tank was more than capable of knocking out Panthers. And that is not to say that the Panthers were defenseless. It's just the overwhelming capabilities of the Allied forces were, well, overwhelming. The industrial might of the U.S. was seemingly infinite. The Panthers, who were always going to be outnumbered by Allied armor, found it difficult to operate in the bocage, and without air support, attempting maneuver into favorable positions proved near impossible. Laying in wait became a cat-and-mouse game. Moving only at night from cover to cover, time was running out for the German army in the West. Quote, this is an opportunity that comes to a commander not more than once in a century. We are about to destroy an entire hostile army. End quote. That was Omar Bradley to Henry Morgenthau during his visit to the Western Theater, as told in Omar Bradley's A Soldier's Story. Great book. What Bradley is referencing here is during the second night of the Mortain counterattack, or Unternehmen Lutich which, yes, after only two days was already seen as a massive failure and an opportunity for the Allies. By the end of August 8th, Le Mans would fall to Patton, and instead of continuing west towards the sign, Bradley ordered Patton's 3rd Army to turn north sharply and head towards Argentan to meet up with the Canadians who had just launched Operation Totalize to push south from Caen towards Falai. The plan was now to trap the 21 German divisions in the Kessel, or salient, like what the Germans had planned to do at the Battle of Kursk. This time, however, the Germans were stuck with their pants around their ankles and were quite exposed after the failure of the Lutich counteroffensive. Though the outcome was now inevitable... This did not stop Der Fierhe from issuing orders to von Kluge that reeked of fantasy and some kind of grotesque comedy that only exists in the minds of fanatical ideologues that were only to doom those fighting on the battlefields. For three days, the German panzer divisions and the accompanying infantry held their ground against relentless attacks from the Allies up and down their front line. Quesada's tactical air force, flew 4,012 sorties during this period, absolutely saturating the battlefield with all kinds of ordnance. And it would not be until the night of August 11th that Hitler capitulated to von Kluge's cries for a minor withdrawal from Mortain to Alencon. It was too late, however. The Allied southern pincer had already captured Alencon and was quickly driving towards Argentan. It was here where... They encountered the remnants of the 9th Panzer Division, where the 2nd Abteilung, Panther, of the 9th Panzer Division was attempting to stem the tide of advancing American tanks. The two companies of Panther-Alps-G's that were still capable of fighting held their ground. Quote, the Abteilung was scattered over an 8-kilometer-wide area in groups of 1-4 to Panthers, separated from each other by about a kilometre. On orders from the 9th Panzer Division, the Abteilung was employed to defend a sector on a wide front. Command of the Abteilung by radio was not possible. Singly or in pairs, the Panthers were shot up by the Jabos, fighter bombers, or enemy tank groups. The Abteilung withdrew with only three Panthers after the loss of 12 Panthers north of Alencombe. End quote. By the end of this action, the Allied planes and tanks had reduced the 9th Panzer Division to the point where, quote, it consisted of only a battalion of infantry, a battalion of artillery, and perhaps a dozen tanks, end quote. The 3rd Army, under command of General Patton, had now reached Argentan on August 12th at precisely 10.17 p.m. He then ordered General Haislip with his 15th Corps to push on slowly in the direction of Filet. However, Patton, in his ever-quotable way, phoned General Bradley to let him know, We now have elements in Argentan. Shall we continue and drive the British into the sea for another Dunkirk? End quote. Bradley did not find this as amusing as I did. Instead of pushing north, Patton was ordered to sit tight as to avoid a two-way friendly shooting range between Canadian forces and American forces. Angered by this, Patton later wrote in his diary that he was sure he would have been able to reach Filet and close the Argentan Fillet encirclement, trapping the Germans. Instead, he was forced to watch as the Germans pulled back through the gap that was left and reassemble their forces and equipment. Side note, Patton later also wrote in his diary that he believed the halt order had originated from Montgomery's command, due to the quote, jealousy of the Americans, or to the utter ignorance of the situation, or to a combination of the two. End quote. Whatever the realities, these two egos would continue to clash throughout the rest of the war. Though that is a story for another day, I thought I would add it here for a little extra spiciness to the campaign. With all that said the following day August 13th the German counteroffensive if you could even call it that had finally been halted the German forces had been driven out of Mortain Le Mans Alençon and even Argentan the German 7th army and Panzergruppe West had lost 120 tanks and assault guns which included nearly all of the new Panther Ausg vehicles on hand Von Kluge was now in danger of being fully surrounded and cut off. The 100,000 or so Germans, now stuck in the fillet pocket, would have to fight their way out or surrender. Spoiler alert, it did not go well for the Germans. According to Max Hastings, by August 22nd, all German forces west of the Allied lines were either dead or in captivity. Of the 100,000 troops caught in Der Kessel von Fille, also known as the grave of thousands, 10 to 15,000 were presumed killed in action, 40 to 50,000 became POWs, while only 20,000 or so escaped. Whatever scraps of hope and morale that had existed after Operation Lutich had been crushed within the pocket. The Panthers on the Western Front had been utterly smashed. In July of 1944, the Germans had 432 Panthers in Normandy, of which 122 were operational. In August, when Lutich and subsequently the Fillet Gap were taking place, the reports kind of differ and are completely unreliable. However, following the Fillet Gap, there might have been maybe a dozen Panthers available for operations. And following the disaster at Fillet, you can now consider Normandy having been won for the Allies. The Germans were crestfallen. By mid-September, however, several Abteilungen of Panthers had been sent to replace those lost, mostly as Panzer brigades operating independently from any of their parent divisions. These would include the likes of Panzer Brigade 112, a newly formed unit of mostly Panther-Ausgiv vehicles, along with some Panzer IVs, Unfortunately for them, their ineffective and novice crew members were no matches for the American forces they ran up against on September 12th and 13th near the town of Epinal during this engagement, which was unavoidable, Epinal being quite close to the western border of Germany proper and the Siegfried Line. According to the 1st Panther Abteilung of Panzer Regiment 29, a report dated September 16th, 1944, Obers described the fate of Panzer Brigade 112. Quote, The brigade was sent into action on the 12th of September against the American breakthrough southwest of Epinal. During this necessary action, the brigade lost almost all of its Panthers to fighter-bomber attacks, artillery fire, and tanks. The Panther Abteilung was practically destroyed. They still possess four operational Panthers, a further three Panthers and Panthers Befehlswagen are in need of repair. 34 Panthers are total write offs. During this action, practically no mechanical breakdowns occurred. The exclusive cause of the total write offs was attacks from behind by 16 to 20 Jabos, fighter bombers, with rocket bombs and phosphorus shells fired from mounted weapons. A considerable number of crew members were casualties. The Abteilung commander was severely wounded and his adjunct was killed. Recovery of the total write-offs is not worthwhile. End quote. There are several reports like this from the book Panzertruppen, Volume 2, by Thomas Jentz and Hilary Doyle, highlighting the ineffectiveness of fresh panzer crews in command of Panther Abteilungen. The Panther G might have been the best of the three Panther variations, but without proper crew, unit, and commander training, these tanks were being thrown into the meat grinder without much thought or concern of their fate. Remember, the Panzer Lair Division was made up of the Panzer Demonstration Team, the best of the best in regards to both experience and the ability to pass on this experience to new crewmen, which, for what it's worth, those Panzer Lair units were nearly killed to a man. But more than losing just good troops, the institutional knowledge that these troops held was also lost. That is not to say that there weren't other panzer schools still operating within the Reich. It's just that these instructors would have been second-rate or, as in a lot of the cases, woefully lacking in both time and equipment to train any new crewmen. This feedback loop only gets worse as 1944 turns into 1945, Turns into the end of the war. Though the number of Panthers would kind of increase, September would see 150 available, 111 operational, and October 222 available, 188 operational, November 329 available, 235 operational. The um, zenith of Panthers in the West would be the report from December 15th, 1944. Curiously, right before a certain Battle of a Particular Bulge, wherein the Panthers totaled 471 available, with a whopping 335 operational. The number steeply drops off going into January of 1945, with 448 available and only 68 operational. The Battle of the Bulge will have to wait for another series, Just, just trust me. Shifting gears and moving out to the east, the Ostfront was not looking much better than the West Front during the summer of nineteen forty four and beyond. During the spring Raputista of nineteen forty four, wherein the Soviets built up their massive reserves, preparing for what would be another brutal summer campaign season. Though this time the Soviets would be making all of the moves, leaving the Nazis to defend their positions. Fifteen panzer divisions were available, though many of them were panzer divisions in all but name only. Replacements weren't coming. The shortages of spare parts, new panzers, new crewmen, new mechanics, literally everything was crippling the operating ability of the entire panzerwaffe on the eastern front. Like forgetful goldfish that can goose step, the German army had seemingly, after five years of panzer warfare, three of which took place on the eastern front, had forgotten how to panzer, or at least were still hamstrung by the ineffective deployment of their panzer units against the Soviets. Obviously, there were successes here and there, but even as late as August of 1944, in an article published in Not de der Panzertruppen, the Bulletin of the Panzer Troops, that Nazi magazine we had mentioned earlier which was meant to extol particular units, their tactics, and propaganda that kind of thing. We quoted an article by Heinz Guderian in a previous episode, and I'd like to pepper in another article here that almost sounds like a summary of several points we've expressed throughout this entire series on the Panther tank. What I will note here is, again, this almost seems elementary, and I have a theory on this. We continue to speak of the lack of experienced panzer the lack of training, the lack of experienced panzer troop Instructors ad nauseum. These lessons had to be reiterated time and time again because they simply weren't being absorbed because the troops themselves, who might have had time to, I don't know, osmosis this information, had either been killed, maimed, or captured and were therefore unavailable to put any of this knowledge to good use. Quote The commander must always cold bloodedly and methodically consider which is more favorable. To immediately attack an enemy tank unit, or to take up a defensive battle firing from stationary tanks. In the first case, he can suffer large losses. In the second case, he runs the danger of an enveloping attack resulting in being subjected to concentrated fire. Above all else, a tank battle is a firefight. Even though movement is important, the threat of enveloping the opponent should not necessarily force him to retreat. It is better to exploit the terrain for obtaining cover in order to open well-aimed rapid fire from favorable firing positions. Aircraft attacks following the British pattern have already occurred in the east and will increase, so that the movement of panzer units will be possible only at night, as is the case in the west and in Italy. All commanders must reckon with this situation at the front and during training. Recently, new panzer units sent to the Eastern Front have again shown outstanding thoughtlessness. Panzer units bivouac in villages, panzers are parked by houses, camouflage is only sketchy. Panzer convoys drive at peacetime intervals, and when halted, close up to intervals of five paces in bright sunshine. Security during radio traffic was totally disregarded. The requirement for us to attempt tank versus tank battles may not lead to inferior and hasty attacks. The intellectual superiority of the responsible officer is decisive: choice of terrain, timing, and combat formation End quote OK, so <clears throat> essentially, the commanders need to find cover before shooting lest they prove good targets for enemy artillery or aircraft to spot and dispatch them. There is also this need to engage in tank combat, forcing the enemy into situations not favorable to them, no artillery support, no air support, and no cover. By keeping the enemy away from their supporting elements, the panzers have effectively leveled the playing field. Or at least, that is the hope and the point of this article. Another point here is in regards to the enemy air superiority. In so many words, this article states that, Look, air cover is not something to be expected anymore. On the Western Front, the Panzer units have learned how to better move from cover to cover, using camouflage and night movement to get into position versus these long, dumb columns during the day. Lessons that would not have necessarily been passed along readily between Western and Eastern Front units. The West Front and the Ost Front were, to turn a phrase, two separate planets. Yes, these planets were acting like a sort of industrial press with Germany being squished and flattened between them. But the way the war was fought on each front was kind of unique and different. With, you know, there was some crossover that required the Germans to adapt, react, or get bowled over, which was also the same and true for the Allies. However, from reading this excerpt and many reports like it from the Eastern Front at this point in the war, they do seem to highlight the sheer inadequacy of the troops available to the Reich and to operate the Panther G. Another noteworthy statement from this report is in regards to the recovery of damaged vehicles. Quote, In large battles, the problem of recovering and repairing damaged tanks is of highest importance. Therefore, one must try to hold the battlefield in our own hands. Even when one is forced to pull back, One must hold the position until all of the damaged tanks can be towed away. Otherwise, the combat unit will soon be reduced and used up. The importance of this problem must also be emphasized for us. The tactical orders must also consider the technical importance. It is incorrect to delay recovery of immobilized panzers just because it is intended to hold the terrain for a longer time. Basically, recovery must begin immediately. As a priority, it is the responsibility of all higher commanders to inform all panzer units when they intend to pull back the main battle line. The number of panzers that were left behind for the enemy as a result of sudden retreats last year can't be further endured under any circumstances. End quote. I want to note here that oftentimes these panther abteilungen were fighting in Kampfgruppen, meaning they were a mixed unit of several units combined into one and put under the direct supervision of a commander. Unfortunately, for the panzers anyway, it was becoming more and more commonplace that these panther units would be placed under command of an infantry commander rather than a panzer commander. There was a plethora of reasons for this, but the main root cause lies in the fact that the infantry combat leaders were simply higher-ranked than their panzer troop and counterparts. Thus, the higher-ranking infantry officer, who may or may not be acquainted with panzer tactics, was often the handicap or linchpin in several failures later in the war. It is difficult to pin down, but remember, combat infantry officers were not always on the front of the front lines, but rather maybe kind of in the rear with the gear. Panzer leaders, on the other hand, did not always have this luxury, and oftentimes combat commanders would be killed in action, and those who did get promoted would be taken out of the frontline service and therefore unable to command a Kampfgruppe. Obviously, this is a broad generalization but it was a notable problem that plenty of panzer did complain about it, like a report from Panzer Regiment 24 while attached to the 1st Panzer Division in January of 1945. Quote, Because of the large front-line sectors and the low combat strength of the grenadiers caused by numerous losses, the Panthers are involved in all types of combat, much of it ill-suited for the Panthers themselves. Successful cooperation with the Grenadiers, which saves the loss of Panthers, is dependent on the Grenadiers commander's understanding of the needs and capabilities of the Panzerwaffe. The Grenadier commander is usually given command of the Kampf group. This sort of disconnect between Panzer units and Grenadier units led to several interdepartmental divisions, arguments, and resentments. It seems the panzers knew how they could be better implemented, but the grenadiers seemed to think the panzers were cowardly or too timid. Going so far as having grenadier commanders comment, quote, panzers must again learn to drive forward, end quote. Or <clears throat> that the panzer crews simply, quote, don't want to remain in the front lines, end quote. However, we here at the Panzer Podcast have gone over the tactics needed to be employed by the Panthers. The Panthers, whom require particular measures to be undertaken in order for their deployment to be viewed as a success. Protecting the flank, scouting ahead, infantry support, artillery support, and air support. Which were all things the Germans were seriously lacking. And something the infantry commanders simply... I don't know, didn't know or didn't understand because they were not Panther commanders. All right, I think we have time for one last report of the Panther Alps G in combat that I would like to tell. Of course, there's all sorts of other actions going on here and there, so these stories have all been cherry-picked to try and get a broad scope of the what, when, why, and where of the Panther Tai Lungen, And their experience reports from 1944 through the end of 1945. By the 19th of January 1945, the 1st Abteilung Panzer Regiment 24, with her 60 Panther G were attached to Heer's Group Sud or Army Group South, still fighting on the Eastern Front. This Panther Abteilung was attached to the 1st Panzer Division. By this point in the war, both the Germans and the Russians had figured out the strong points and the weak points of the Panther tank. And probably more important was how to exploit these attributes. The Red Army seemed particularly adept at countering the German tactics by 1945. Lessons learned from 1943 on had proved a net positive for the Soviet troops the Panzertruppen found their situation to become less and less tenable with each passing day. It can be said that for each day of combat, the German army grew weaker, while the Red Army continuously strengthened itself through manpower, materiel, and experience. One of these learned tactics to defeat the Panther in battle was something known as a pack front, which translates roughly to anti-tank gunline, though Realistically, the Panzerwaffe kind of adopted another nickname for this style of fighting with a more accurate title, pack Nest. Essentially, the Russians would bring their AT guns up with them during an attack, either by towing them or physically dragging them along with the advancing forces to help engage the enemy. The Russians, notably the best at camouflage, would then situate their pack Guns in a circle or even a semicircle, about 40 to 50 meters apart or 130 to 165 feet apart lying in wait remember even the 45 millimeter pack gun was enough to penetrate the panther from the side though by now in late 1944 and early 1945 the russians were fielding the um, the zis or zis 3 76 millimeter at gun which was now much deadlier than the 45 millimeter and also becoming a little more common So, once the German counterattack, which inevitably always came after a Soviet advance began, these now well-hidden pack guns would wait for the Panthers, or whatever vehicles, to drive into the pack nest, and then they would open fire at point-blank range with devastating effect. To make matters worse for the Panzerwaffe, even if they managed to spot these hidden guns, and that's always a big if, the Soviets expertly hid themselves among the bush, the ground, whatever, even going so far as to remove the wheels of the AT guns just to decrease its height by another foot or so. Quote, If the Russian anti-tank crews are spotted and taken under well-aimed fire, they quickly abandon their weapon. However, they quickly reman the guns when not observed or when firing ceases and again take up the firefight. End quote. That quote, as well as many to come, are from the report of the 1st Abteilung, Panzer Regiment 24. The tenacity of these Russian soldiers to constantly harass the panzers exhausted the German forces. If the Panthers could not physically destroy the pack guns or their gunners, they were guaranteed to be used against them again. The Russians knew that any war of attrition would go in their favor, Manpower, supplies, ammo, and whatever else was needed, well, there was no shortage of this for the Red Army. The Germans, on the other hand, if you'll recall, were saving nuts and bolts wherever they could. So, dealing with these pack nests was always going to be a losing battle. To try and combat these pack nests, the use of Aufklärung truppen, or recon units, would be necessary. This would generally be done by the recon section of 4 to five Panthers, noting again that the primary advantage of the Panther was in fact the range and capability of the 75mm KWK-42. It was also the best way for the Panthers to dispatch the aforementioned packnest. Quote, The firing range is decisive for fighting the pack nest. If a panzer formation is fired on surprisingly at short range, all weapons need to be employed immediately. If a panzer formation encounters a strong anti-tank emplacement at long and medium ranges, the panzer man must attempt to continuously utilize the long range of his weapon. However, this requires observation halts in order to spot the anti-tank guns in time. End quote. This is all quite useful information. However, as noted... The Russians were expert at concealing themselves amongst the terrain. So, in order for the Panther recon units to find these pack nests, even with an observation halt, required meticulous combing of the terrain by experienced recon troops, though the latter would obviously be hard to come by. There was another tactic that this Abteilung used, and presumably several others would as well. Quote Combat reconnaissance which moves forward on a wide formation in front of the main body in order to find any pack nests that can be spotted only after they fire. During such a reconnaissance, with Elan, these panzers must move at the highest possible speed from observation point to observation point, conducting detailed combat reconnaissance while halted, and cause the enemy to reveal himself by firing at suspicious terrain features. End quote. This is a textbook definition of recon by fire, slow, meticulous, poignant, and precise movement and fire from a dedicated section of recon tanks. Not only is this practical from the viewpoint of the panzer Panzertruppen, but it was doctrine. This is how it was supposed to be done. Reality, however, was kind of different. Quote, Despite this, the Panzerman has to suffer under the meager understanding of the grenadier commander who can't comprehend how the Panthers must fight the enemy anti-tank guns. It is clear that the mighty, vaunted, invincible, always-advancing 10-to-1 kill ratio Panzerwaffe was operating on a shoestring budget of inexperienced crew, lacking of spare parts, maintenance, ammo, fuel, food, and were under the thumb of equally incompetent combat leaders by virtue of there being nothing left in the proverbial gas tank that was the German war machine. If 1943 was bad, 1944 was worse, and by 1945, it was a catastrophe. Not to diverge too much, but 1945 onward is when you see large formations of Volkstrom units and Hitler Hitlerjugend, Hitler Youth, Boy Scouts, but way more fashy, being pressed into combat. Now, the Volkstrom was a callback to the Prussian Landsturm of 1813 through 1815 that helped resist against Napoleon mainly as barefooted guerrilla type militias. The Nazi version, the Volkstrom, which came into existence in October of 1944, was the last ditch effort led by Joseph Goebbels in his attempts to add additional manpower to the German army who desperately needed it for their defense. However, the categories of men they called up were essentially the leftovers, men who were previously deemed unfit for service, such as those who were too old or not old enough, and even wounded soldiers who had been discharged due to the severity of their wounds, i.e. they were missing a limb, they were partially blind, deaf, that kind of thing. This is where the old American adage of, they're sending us old men and children to fight, that was kind of, I don't know, often reported at the end of the war. Anyway, the report continues in describing how wasteful their commanders and orders were becoming by describing the wanton misuse and negligence. Quote, The Russian tank forces are an opponent to be reckoned with only when they are in a situation to let our attack run into them. We repeatedly offer the Russians opportunities through insufficient enemy recon and thereby attack with panzers without advance clear orders and directions. End quote. This statement kind of illuminates that the commanders were literally contradicting the panther feeble, Heinz Guderian, the basic teachings at panzer schools, and, I mean, it almost seems like common sense, but it's clearly not common. Nearly all of the after-action reports going all the way back to July of 1943 after the Battle of Kursk demonstrated that without proper recon of the enemy, the Panthers were vulnerable. Yet, somehow in 1945, we still find these novice and ignorant commanders throwing away what little assets they had left in these wasteful, hasty attacks with little or no purpose, as described by this after-action report dated February 3, 1945. Quote, During the battle around Stuhl-Weissenburg, it was expected that the Russians would mount a tank attack on the north side of the city. This was mentioned several times by the Abteilung commander. In spite of this, together with Tigers from another unit, the Panther Abteilung was ordered to start a counterattack farther north and hit the reported Russian tanks in the rear. The attack started out in fog with poor visibility, while our own Panthers prepared to attack further north, as expected the Russians started attacking south. A break-in to the city could be prevented only by pulling the Tigers back. Due to poor visibility, the Kampf group employed farther north ran into an enemy defensive position, reinforced with mines, and the attack came to an immediate halt. End quote. This entire report reads like a guide on how to lose your Panther Abteilung in 10 days or less. Speaking of losing an entire Abteilung in ten days, remember the Battle of Kursk and how the panthers, when they were deployed uh, or used in tasks that you know they weren't made for or especially good at, they did quite poorly and were generally lost while doing so? No, that's okay, neither did the German commanders. Quote, the task assigned must be based on the available strength and capabilities of the panther units. The strained tactical situation in no way allows maintenance pauses so that the number of operational Panthers is significantly reduced during an action. End quote. Yep, you heard that right. No maintenance pauses. Because if we've learned anything from this series, it's that the super always reliable Panthers did not need those routine maintenance stops to keep them rolling. Nope, not them. Not the Panthers. Not at all. Sarcasm aside, in many ways, it would not have actually mattered that much. Um, first of all, since the 1944 K-Stan reorganization and the introduction of the Freigliederung, or the Free Organization, the Panther Abteilungen would not have been assigned any instanzsetzung units, those repair units, to actually do any of the required maintenance. At this point, if a Panther was lost and could not immediately be repaired or withdrawn, It was lost forever. This reorganization effort is also why the Abteilung itself was usually misassigned into Kampf groups led by less than stellar or even, you know, just straight up bad commanders. Um, We're going to leave the 1st Abteilung, the Panzer Regiment 24, with the summation of their actions during the first couple of months of 1945 with this scathing report Quote Unfortunately, however, A low point has been reached in this area which causes panther losses and high wear on the equipment. In part, the grenadier commander sees in the panther a cure for all of the difficult combat situations, because he doesn't know and can't recognize the weaknesses and limited capabilities of the panthers. The grenadier commander sees in the panther a strong, armored, powerful monster with a giant gun without recognizing its disadvantages such as weak side armor, limited sight capability, and lower maneuverability. During combat with tanks and anti-tank guns, as a rule, the Grenadiers are never beside the Panthers, because this is not their assignment and they don't have anything to do. However, hardly has the tank battle ended when the Grenadier commander comes forward to ask why the advance hasn't started again, and why the battle lasted so long. And then again, over-hurriedly, the Panthers are sent against the next objective. This creates an unfavorable situation for the next encounter with the enemy. End quote. If one thing has been made abundantly clear by this report, it is that the interoperability and coordination of both infantry and armored units is paramount to their success. You cannot have one without the other, The infantry must support the armor so that the armor can support the infantry. Plain and simple. Quote, Employment of the panzers in street fighting cannot be successfully conducted without the closest cooperation of the grenadiers. The limited ability to see out of the panther makes it easier for the enemy to fight it. The grenadiers must help. Advancing by rushes from cover to cover under the protection of the panther's weapons they spot anti-tank guns, tanks, and heavy infantry weapons, reporting them to the commanders. Mutual trust builds the basis for cooperation. Often the grenadiers use the Panthers as cover and a shield against small arms fire, however suffering heavy losses from fire aimed at the Panthers themselves. During the advance of our own Panthers on February 1st to the north side of stuhl our own Panthers suffered losses from hidden anti-tank guns on the flank that could have been spotted in time and fought if the escorting Grenadiers had advanced with the Panthers. End quote. Again, the failures lie within the whole rotting structure. The Reich was out of time, and the men on the front were suffering the consequences as such. Each and every combat sortie that the Panthers launched with Grenadier support was done in such a way that made a Three legged sack race seemed like a better monument to cooperation. The following day, during operations in Stuhl Weissenberg, again without the proper infantry support, the Panthers, quote, conducted an attack in the fog north of Stuhl Weissenberg. Running into an enemy anti tank position and tanks prepared for defense led to the loss of one Panther as a total write off, which would be the achievement of the day. End quote. the late war antics of the Panzerwaffe produced poor results for the panther offs g, despite all of the upgrades and improvements. there simply was not enough time for the crews to become adequately acquainted with the machines, nor were there enough veterans left to pass on experience, nor were the spare parts needed available, nor were there repair mechanics to keep the panthers running, nor the logistical support available nor the SD KFZ 9 FAMO heavy prime movers, nor were their commanders with the proper know-how available to commit the Panther Abteilungen in a concentrated and efficient manner. Without getting too high-minded or abstract, we can say with confidence that the Panther OS g and probably all of the Osferung of the Panther tank, as too little, too late. There was no magic equation that would ever have allowed Nazi Germany to produce a war-winning scenario? Least of all by focusing on some of the futile Wunderwaffe, like the Panther tank. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode and put the finishing touches on the Panther off's G, the last real variation of the Panther tank. We have one, maybe two episodes left in this series before we take a break and then we get into the Sherman. A little bit of insight into my real-world life, but it is tax season. For those of you who are unaware, that is the time of the year when fools like me who work at an accounting firm are stuck in their office from about February 1st to April 18th preparing income tax returns. Meaning, I've been writing the last couple of episodes right in the thick of it. Not to complain, but once we finish the Panther series, It will be a nice break for me, and it will allow me to focus on my real-life work endeavors and maybe relax. Yeah, right. Never fear, I will be dutifully reading and outlining the Sherman series, which is going to be quite a lot of fun. I'm even lining up a guest or two for some interviews, and maybe even a guest host type situation. I haven't decided yet for sure, but it should be fun. So, thanks for hanging in there with me, and I hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. We've got a lot more planned for the future, and I'm very excited to see where we go. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. If you like what we're doing here, I would appreciate a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening, because it does help us reach new audience members and I super appreciate it. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening. Mit dir teilen. Ohne dich fang ich gar nicht mehr an. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch nicht so, weil ich dein Freund sein kann.